0: John 3, it's on the screen behind me, verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help this morning. that what John says of himself would be true of us, that we would decrease in our own sight, and that you would increase. I pray that you would help us, please, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to see what's really here, and to treasure it, to trust it, to change our thinking, to change our lives, to change what we treasure based on what's here. Because this is what's true. Your word is true. And we want a firm foundation to stand on. That's what we need. We need truth. So help us now. Help us in the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the title of this sermon, if you saw in your little bulletin when you came in, is Satisfied with Being Small. It's not a sermon about being happy and short. It's about being content, happy, when your life looks small in the eyes of the world. And it's important that we say that at the end, in the eyes of the world, because in God's eyes, He has a completely different perspective, doesn't He? His perspective is the opposite of the world's. What's big in this world's eyes is small to God, and what is significant in God's eyes is small to this world. Last, the last several weeks, we've been walking through a conversation that Jesus was having with Nicodemus. And in that conversation, again and again, Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, if you're going to be saved, God's the one who has to do it. By the Spirit, he's got to open your eyes so that you can see the truth. Then, Nicodemus, I've got to die on the cross to pay for your sins, which you can't do, and you've got to trust me to be saved. And then last week we saw, he told Nicodemus, and here's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who's been changed so that what they want most deeply is for God to get the credit with their lives. And we're going to see this week what that looks like in a person. We're going to see what that kind of heart actually looks like in the person of John the Baptist. So here's the main push of this text. It's that you and I and John the Baptist were made to be happiest by drawing attention away from yourself and towards Jesus Christ. You and I, everyone who's ever lived, we were made to be happiest by drawing attention away from ourselves and towards Jesus Christ. And that cuts against every inclination that you are born with to draw attention away from yourself and towards Jesus Christ. This is why social media exists, isn't it? Look at what I'm eating. Look at what I'm wearing. Look at what my dog is doing. It's all about me being the main character in my story. Everyone lives like that. We're born living like that. The problem is you're not the main character, and you can't be. If you live to make a name for yourself in your nation, among your classmates, at your workplace, among your family, you will ruin them and yourself. I mean, think about a book or a movie. We mentioned main characters. If you try to be the main character, you will certainly turn out to be the villain. That's how this world works. If you try to make yourself the main character or a main character, that's how we get around this. Sure, Jesus can be the main character, but I'll be there too. Jesus will be the main character, but I'll be a main character. If you try to do that in your kid's life, your spouse's life, your parent's life, your friend's life, in your church's life, you're stealing the spotlight from the only character that can make them and you truly happy. That's the problem, and that's what makes you a villain. We're going to see here in this passage that John the Baptist is faced with the temptation to want to be a bigger character than he is, and we're going to see his two responses to that temptation. So if you just want a map of where we're going, we're first just going to look at what temptations he's being faced with here. And then we're going to see his two responses to that temptation. And he's going to show us the greatness of being small. I hope that's what you see. Okay, here's the temptations that John the Baptist is presented with. Start in verse 22. I'm going to read 22 through 24. So after this, talking about the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So, John is still baptizing people in the Jordan, but Jesus is now baptizing people. And we'll we'll actually see in chapter 4, verse 2, that it's his disciples. Jesus is not baptizing, but his disciples are doing it for him. Nonetheless, instead of having one big, massive, exciting ministry happening in the Jordan, there are two now. Think about this for John's perspective. You've got the ministry, and somebody sets up a ministry doing the same thing you're doing right down the road. How do you feel about that? I mean, from what many of you have told me about churches in your home countries, I think there are probably a lot of pastors who aren't Christians, but think they are, who would crucify Jesus if he started taking members from their church. Jesus has set up shop right down the river from John the Baptist. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples, so John has followers, and a Jew... Over purification. So, Jewish purification is a symbol where you take water and you wash yourself, and it's representing the cleanness of heart you should have when you come before God in worship. Baptism shares some of those same symbols because in baptism, part of what you're symbolizing is the washing away of your sin. Now, Baptism doesn't actually wash your sin away. It's a picture of what God is doing when you trust Him. When you trust Him, He washes your sin away. And in baptism, you're saying, yeah, that's what God has done for me. So, there's similarity in the picture there. Now, it appears that a Jew has approached John's disciples, and he's comparing their purification with Jesus's. So, It seems like he's comparing John's baptism with the baptism that Jesus is doing right down the river. And maybe we can just imagine that this Jew was saying something like this. Which one is better? Your baptism or the one they're doing? Because it sure seems like your ministry is getting smaller and theirs is getting bigger. Do they have a better purification than you do? Now, we can guess that's how the conversation went, because immediately John's disciples come to him concerned because people are leaving them and going towards Jesus. Do you see that in verse 26? They have this conversation about purification, and then immediately they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, He's baptizing, and all are going to him. Do you see their concern? They're losing people. People are leaving them and going to Jesus. Their circle of influence is shrinking. They're losing market share. They're not the big, exciting ministry anymore. They're being eclipsed, and they're saying, John, everybody's leaving us and going to that guy. So do you see the temptations that this is presenting to John the Baptist? There are a few. There are a couple. One temptation that John is going to be faced with when he hears this is the temptation to be discontent. Discontent. Discontentment, it's a sin, when your soul is not peacefully resting in God's care for you. It's really hard to tell from the outside whether you're discontent or not because the definition is is your heart peacefully resting in God's care for you? If you're not, you're discontent. There's something you feel like you should have that you're not getting, and so you're not at peace in your soul. John's being tempted to be discontent, tempted to be unhappy because he's losing ministry. He's losing fame. He's losing power. He's losing influence. He's losing a sense of importance. If you deeply want those things and you don't have them, you're not going to be content. Another temptation that John could be faced with is envy. Envy. So envy is when you're not satisfied in your soul and you also want what that other person has. That's what envy is. I feel like I should have what that other person has. I feel like I should have that ministry that's happening down the Jordan River. I used to until he took it. And behind those temptations to discontent and envy are this temptation, to want to be praised by people. We draw so much contentment, sense of well-being, happiness, based on our standing in the eyes of the world. So much of our understanding of our self-worth is, how do people view me? Do people know me? This is not just a non-Christian thing, too. This is for Christians as well. I mean, you might be thinking, You're a Christian, maybe maybe you're even doing ministry, and you think, well, I don't care what the world thinks about me. But you do care what other Christians think about you. I don't care if the world thinks I'm dumb, but I would like to be famous among Christians, that they would think my ministry matters, that they would think what I'm doing is really important. It's a real temptation for all of us. So how does John respond How does John respond to these temptations? He has two responses. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at his two responses and then try to apply them to our lives. Here's response number one. His first response is to tell his followers that everything good we have or anyone has is given by God. Look at verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. So he's telling his followers what we've been seeing week after week in this book. Everything good that we have is a gift from God. It was given. Do you see John saying that? Which means you didn't make it for yourself or earn it. A person cannot receive even one thing, unless it's been given. Your health, your money, your influence, your friends, your ministry abilities, your family, any spiritual life or good that you've got going on in here is given. It's given to you. How does thinking that way help you battle the temptation to be discontent? It's because if you're discontent... You believe you should have something that you're not getting. It's as though John is saying to his disciples, okay, are you saying that I should have been proud of the ministry I had? When all those people were coming, and there were lots of people coming to John, lots of people, huge, massive, exciting crowds. He's saying, do you think I should have been proud of that as though I deserved it? And now that it's gone, do you feel like I should be moaning and complaining because it's not there anymore? As though I deserved it? No, it was all given. All a gift. Have you thanked God for the good that's in your life today? Because I promise you, you don't deserve it. People who are thankless when they have their gifts are the grumblers when they don't have their gifts. They're always the same people because they're people who don't recognize that everything they have is a gift when it's in their hands and when it's taken away. They never deserved it. John is telling his disciples That was given as a stewardship to me. You know what a stewardship is? It's when you're given something that you're supposed to take care of for a little while. John's saying, I didn't deserve it then, and now that it's going away, I'm not being wronged. Have you ever seen a child at someone else's house playing with the toys of the kids in that house? Like, they find another kid's dinosaur or train and they're playing with it, and they're having a great time, and it's all great until it's either time to go home or the kid who actually owns that toy dinosaur wants it back. Then what happens? Mine. Mine. Right? Now, that kid may have never, ever known that that toy dinosaur existed up to that point and could have lived their life completely happy, never knowing that it existed. But because it was given to them and taken away, they think it's theirs. Mine. And you and I do the exact same thing. I think you do, but you do. You had your great-paying job for three years, and then you lose it. God, that was mine. You had your health for the last 20 years, and it starts to go away, and you say, God, that was mine. Your kid starts to get sick, and you say, God, don't you dare. That's mine. And we miss the fact that it's a stewardship it was a gift that God wanted us to take care of for a little while. And we know this is so much easier to say than to actually live, isn't it? Oh, of course, everything's a gift. We don't deserve it unless our health is taken, our job, our money, our sense of calling, our spouse, our kids. Just reflect, really reflect, consider What is your most precious stewardship? What is it? Consider that it's given by God for you to take care of and enjoy with thanksgiving while you have it for a little while and it's not deserved by you at all. Now, when it's taken away, if it's taken away, It won't keep you from grieving. So knowing this truth is not going to keep you from being sad. It's right to be sad when it's taken away. But it will keep you from being resentful towards God, grumbling, discontent. He knows what he's doing both as gift giver and gift taker. You don't deserve it but he's giving and taking both for your good. John knows that. And we would do well to learn it too deeply. And listen, now's the time to learn it. Now's the time to learn it before the stewardship is taken away. Now's the time to reflect on the goodness of God that we don't deserve it but he's giving and taking for our good now there's one more application of this truth a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven if everything is given by God that's what verse 27 is saying everything that means the life you have was given to you and not a different one you got that? The life you have is the one that was given to you and not a different life. You have the life that God wants you to live. If he wanted you to have someone else's life, he would have given it to you. That's an implication of this truth. If everything is given from him, you steward your life. That's what pleases God with your life, for you to steward your life. He doesn't want you to be anxious about how you would live with someone else's job, their finances, their family, or abilities. He doesn't want you to worry about how you would live someone else's life. He doesn't want you to want someone else's life. If he wanted it for you, he would have given it to you. And notice, because it's given from heaven, do you see that in verse 27? It's given from heaven. means given from God. That means it's not random. Your life's not random. The things you have, the life you have, the place you are, it's not random. It's given with purpose. You have your abilities and not others. You got that? You have a spouse or you don't. And that's the life God wants for you. And if you have your husband or wife, you have your husband or your wife and not another. And that's what God wants for you. You have kids or you don't have kids. And that's what God wants for now. And if you have your kids, you have your kids and not other kids. God is not judging your life based on what you accomplish or what you would have accomplished with someone else's life. Got that? You have your life. You steward it faithfully. Other people have their lives. They're called to steward that faithfully. We do this all the time, don't we? Yeah, my life would have been a lot more fruitful, but these kids, these kids. If I had their kids, of course, I would have done all these great things. You don't have their kids. And God doesn't want you to have their kids. He gave you your kids, and your stewardship is to them. Oh, but if my health had been different, oh, man, what I would have become. God didn't want you to have their health. He wanted you to have yours. And he wants you to be faithful with what he's given. That's what he cares about. Do you get that? No matter how small that makes your life look. Oh, please get this. Comparing yourself with others is stealing your life away. You've been given exactly what God wants you to have. What he cares about is how faithful you steward what's been given to you. John the Baptist knows that God gave him the ministry that he used to have and that God is now giving him the life and smaller ministry. That he has. That's all God wants John to be faithful with. So fight the temptation to discontentment and envy by being convinced that it's all given. It's not deserved and it's given with a purpose. All right, let's look at John's second response to losing ministry. Response number two, verses 28 through 30. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ. But I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John says, Listen, I told you, I've been telling you, I'm not the king of Israel, I'm not the Christ. You know that. And then he gives an analogy of a wedding. And he mentions three people who are in this wedding. Do you see that? Who are they? There's the bride, the groom, the bridegroom, and the friend. And in the text, what do those three people do? The bride is married by the groom. The groom marries the bride And the friend stands and hears him. So he's standing by the groom, and he's listening to him getting married, saying his vows. That's what the friend's doing. Does the friend take the bride? Is that his job? No. That wouldn't be good. Men, how would you feel on your wedding day? Your best man, your bud, your bro is up there. And pushes you out of the way when you start to say the vows. "Ladies, how would you feel you're maid of honor, your girl, your sisters up there, and she's flirting all day long with your future husband, trying to get his attention. How would you feel about that? It's as though John is telling his followers, "Look, I'm not the groom. This is not my wedding." Are you suggesting I step in right now and try to take the bride? Not only would that be wrong, look what he says. It's not just that it would be wrong. That's not how John argues. Look what he says. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The word complete means filled, so filled up full. He's saying, My joy has been filled by being the friend of the groom. I'm supposed to make this day about Jesus because this is his wedding, and making it about Jesus is what has filled up my joy. Do you see that's how he's arguing? And he goes on to say in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. John's purpose was to prepare the bride, God's people, for the coming of their groom. He's not the groom. He's not God. He's not their king. He's not their savior. He was to get the people ready for Jesus. And for a moment, that meant that a lot of people were coming to John and noticing him crowding in massive numbers. But now that Jesus has arrived, his job is to fade into the background so that the groom gets all the attention. And that's what makes his joyful. It's not those crowds. It's the groom getting the attention. This is not just a John the Baptist thing. Last week we saw in verse 21, you can just scan up with your eyes, verse 21, that becoming a Christian is when God changes your deepest desires so that what you want is for him to get credit and glory in your life. That's what you're living for now. You're living for his fame, his honor, his glory, and not your own. That's what it means to be a Christian. Just one other verse to confirm this. It's all over the New Testament, but this is a good one. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Listen to this one. Christ died for all. And then there's a purpose statement. Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What an amazing verse. That's why Jesus came. He came to free you from living for yourself so that you could live for him. That's what John is telling us, that the way to be full, think of yourself as a cup. You're a a big cup. The way for your cup to be full to the top with joy is through living for Jesus in his shadow please let this sink in. This is not your wedding. This world is not your wedding. Don't try to be the groom. You don't want to be that character, do you? The only way for you to be happy is living in the shadow of the groom. He has to have the spotlight and you have to go to the background. That's the only way. Your ambition to be known and treasured by this world has to die. Your dream for a big life, it must die. Now, some of you might have this question, especially Christians. Oh, wait, wait a second. Aren't I supposed to be ambitious for Christ's sake? And I hope you don't hear in this sermon, don't want Jesus to be known and treasured. We are supposed to be ambitious for Christ's sake. We should want him to be known. We should work hard for his sake and use all that's been given in our life to draw attention to him. But hear this. I hope you get this. The number of people who notice your ministry will add zero to your happiness on the last day. Zero. Seriously, Oh, if you take this to heart, it will change the way you do everything. The number of people who notice the size of your ministry, the greatness of your ministry, will add absolutely nothing to your happiness. Nothing. Your happiness is caught up with being faithful and drawing attention to Jesus with whatever the scope of your life is, And with you sharing the spotlight as little as possible. That last last bit is an important ingredient. As we said at the beginning, yeah, we want Jesus to get the spotlight. And since I'm the one that's giving him the spotlight, I'll get a little bit too. No. It's being faithful that Jesus would get the attention and that we get as little as possible. I was thinking about this driving around yesterday. If you've ever read the book of 2 Corinthians, when you get to the end of the book, Paul sounds like a crazy person. The first time I read 2 Corinthians, I thought, what is he talking? He's going crazy. And here's why Paul's going crazy in 2 Corinthians. Because the church in Corinth is saying, listen, Paul, we're not going to follow Jesus unless you put the spotlight on yourself. So he's stuck in this dilemma. Wait, wait! You're saying you won't listen to Jesus unless I turn the spotlight onto myself for a minute? And he starts to sound crazy. This is what he does, and he does do it. He turns the spotlight on himself, but it's like he's ah okay. It's over. It's me turning the spotlight on myself. Does your life feel small? Are you scared with the smallness of your life? Are you scared with how small your life might turn out in the end to be a minor character? Do you wish your life were bigger? Don't wish that it were bigger. You can't try to share the spotlight with Jesus and shine the spotlight on Jesus at the same time. You can't be the groom and the friend of the groom at the same time. Wanting to share the spotlight with Jesus is the road to unhappiness. Again, this cuts against everything we're born just sensing. Everything this world's about. Your life is a gift, everything good in it. And what matters is that you take yours, not someone else's, and live your life in the background, wanting to shine the light on Jesus with all that you've been given. And that life might, will look small to the world. But it's the most joyful life. That's just what I want to ram home this morning. If you would believe it, that that is actually the most joyful life. That's what John's telling his disciples. You think that all the attention is the pathway to the most joyful life. And John got a lot. And he's saying, that's not where my joy is. My joy is shining the light on him. So now that he must increase and he must, I must decrease. That's where my joy is. Probably none of us will ever be famous. God help us if we were. Some of you will die before you do anything great in the eyes of the world. And you might be tempted to think that that life doesn't matter. That's not true. If with what you were given, that little time you were given, the resources you were given, the relationships you were given, you threw the spotlight on Christ. You might be a mom. No one will ever applaud what you're doing taking care of those two, four, seven little people. You don't have a career that anybody can (coughs) applaud at. You don't have some big outside ministry anyone can praise. And you might be tempted to think, that life doesn't matter. But you will be infinitely happier than the most beloved celebrity in Hollywood, Bollywood, White House. If. You shine the light on Jesus with those little ones you've been given. Some of you might be single. You might live your whole life that way, never having kids, never having a big platform or impressive job, and you might be tempted to think, that life doesn't matter because I'm not the main character in anyone's life. That life does matter. If you wanted to make Jesus look great, to the people he entrusted to you with the resources he gave you. That's greatness in God's eyes. That life will look small to the world, but it is the most joyful life. Jesus wants that for you. Full joy. John the Baptist knew that. I just want to tie this into the gospel. This is not just like a moralistic sermon. You should want your life to be small, so quit wanting it to be big. Jesus wants this for you, and that's why he died. All of us have been trying to be the main character. You still try to be the main character every once in a while. Jesus went to the cross for that. He was punished for that but he went to be punished so that you could be forgiven so that he could, by the Spirit, give you a life that's actually happy, living for him. That's what Jesus wants for you. He went to the cross so that you would have it, a life that fades into the background and shines all the light on him. He purchased that for you on the cross, and there's power for it in your life, if you believe this if you believe that the life of joy is found in drawing attention to him. That's what he wants. That's what he wants for us more and more. So let's pursue it in his power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. You know our hearts. You see our hearts. We care what people think about us because we believe the lie that being seen and recognized is what will make us full, joyful. And Jesus, you came to forgive us and to empower us to see that pursuing your glory, your fame, is where fullness of life is found. Please, would you help us believe it? Please, God. We don't want to be hypocrites who act like we're doing things for your glory, but secretly we want to share the spotlight. Would you convince us that fullness of life is found in living for your glory and not our own? And would you let us experience it, God? Would you let us taste it? Even this week, taste the joy of fading into the background and shining the light on you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins and for rising from the dead so that we might have new life and no longer live for ourselves, but for you who died and rose again on our behalf. Help us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.